Awesome. Hey, welcome to week two of uh, Shift Happens. Glad to have you uh, in the house of uh, uh, God uh, this morning. We're taking the next number of weeks to, to look at what supernatural shift in your life entails. Uh, we believe that following Jesus isn't just salvation for your spirit, it's healing for your body, it's transformation for your family, it's development for your sphere of influence. We don't want to sell the gospel short on its truly transformational power for every part of who we are. And so that's what we do as believers. Paul says it in the book of Romans. He says, offer yourselves, not just your spirits, offer yourselves, your entire life as living sacrifices unto God. And this is why when Paul preaches, he says, in him we live, in him we move and in him we have our being. And then he quotes the poets of the first century. He says, even as your poets say, we are his offspring. And so over the next number of weeks, we're going to be unpacking some of that ideology and we're going to look together at what scripture communicates as a high ethic of following Jesus uh, Christ. Somebody was trying to give me a compliment this week, bless their heart, but it was one of those compliments that's kind of like wrapped in a critique. And so you don't know whether to say thank you or just walk away and and uh, anyways, they told me, they, they told me, they said, Pastor, they said, we love your preaching, but I've noticed something in ministry, you got to watch out for the big butts, you know what I mean? You got to watch out because people have them and they use them and uh, you got to watch out for the big butts. And they said, Pastor, we love your preaching, but why don't you ever preach on sin? And uh, I responded, I said, well, why don't you tell me a couple of yours, and uh, we'll develop a, a sermon series here for the next about 16 weeks, and we'll just, <clears throat> that's not what they meant. They meant somebody else's sin, but not, not, not their own sin. But uh, anyways, this morning, uh, I'm, I'm going to be with you in the Gospel of, of Luke, uh, starting in chapter 15. Uh, and in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is telling uh, a story. In fact, he's telling three stories in response to a critique that he's received from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which are like the religious class of that day. Let me give you a little context this morning because it starts actually in verse 1 of Luke 15. The Bible says this, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Therefore Jesus told them this parable. A parable was kind of like an illustrated story. Jesus often uses these stories to help describe the ethic of the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like to truly follow Jesus. And Jesus is being critiqued for hanging out with sinners and with tax collectors. I want you to see something, though, that's important here in the narrative of Luke 15. Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors so that he can be an influence on them, not the other way around. I think in our culture, we've got it reversed. It's like we want to hang out with sinners and tax collectors, take a selfie, post it on our social media to build our influence. And the question becomes, who's influencing who? It's almost like Moses goes back to Egypt, takes a selfie with Pharaoh, and then goes back home. No, that's not how this works. Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors for the express purpose of drawing them unto himself. Because remember, it's the kindness and goodness of God that draws men unto repentance. But it's not good enough for the Pharisees and Sadducees. They are obsessed with the way things look on the outside, and they could care less about the motive on the inside. So as they're critiquing Jesus, Jesus begins to tell a story now that both parties will be privy towards. 
And the story essentially has three parts. The first is the parable of the lost sheep. The second is the parable of the lost coin. And the one that you're probably most familiar with, which will be in today, is the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And although there's three stories, there's one central point, which is this. Even though things may seem lost to us, nothing is lost by him. And Jesus is using these parables to help illustrate the ethic and the character of God, what it looks like to seek and save that which is lost. Remember, Jesus also says things like this, I came as a doctor for the sick, not for the healthy. He's continually reminding people of his express purpose and his express mission. Starting in verse 11 out of Luke 15, the Bible says this, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate, so he divided his property between them. Let me just stop there for a moment so you really understand the context here of Luke 15. As the son is speaking to his father, he's saying, give me the inheritance that would be due to me upon your death. Essentially this, father, you're dead to me, so give me what's mine. This wasn't like, give me a loan and I'll pay you back later. This wasn't, you're late on my allowance, so could I get an advance? This was, you're dead to me, I'm breaking relationship, I have no interest, and the only thing I want is your hand, but I could care less about your heart. Does that sound like some of us from time to time? Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild, some translations say in prodigal living. Let me just stop there for a moment, friend. There is a danger, hear me, there is a danger in not appreciating what you have. Because it causes you to believe the myth that somehow life is waiting for you on the other side of where you're currently at. But we know this to be true. The grass isn't greener on the other side. In fact, it's greener where you water it. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, one man plants and another man waters, but it is God who brings the increase. Which means you, as a believer, have a responsibility to steward where you're at. How many times do we fall into the trap that my life would just be better on the other side of this relationship, on the other side of this season, on the other side of this employment, on the other side of this hardship? But what I've found is the more that I follow God, the more that I've got to accept responsibility to steward the soil that he's given me in this season because it's how I steward what's now that best prepares me for what's next. There's a responsibility and mandate for those who are spiritually mature not to wait until they reach the mythical other side. Come on, we're always chasing happiness. We're always chasing the things that we think will make us fulfilled only to get where we're going and recognize that happiness isn't an outside job, it's an inside job. You've got a responsibility to steward and maintain the soil of your life. You know, when we decided to plant a church in little old Snohomish, I literally had people laugh in my face. <laughs> they say, you're going to plant a church in that little cow town, Snohomish? Smells the way it does on a hot summer day and kind of out of nowhere, antique town. And I literally had people laugh in my face, but I just really trusted 
that if God could do something in Snohomish, it would prove to all the naysayers that God could do something anywhere. And so what we've seen is a kingdom of God that is increasing and a church that is growing in the midst of a relatively small city. And it's because this thing gives credit back to God that I think we continue to expand and grow. So watch what I'm saying. It is not the significance of the location of my feet, but instead the attitude of my spirit that causes me to manage what I have now well. And when you steward the one talent, God gives you the three. And when you steward the three, he gives you the five. And when you steward the five, he gives you the 15. But so many of us are praying for increase, but we haven't stewarded what we've got now. And how can God give you an acre when you won't steward the little garden that you've got? So we have soil in this region. And it's how I steward Snohomish that sets me up for Seattle. It's how I steward Seattle that sets me up for the region. I don't want to explain to you today like it's some sort of ladder with these rungs that I'm trying to climb. It's more reflective on, 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 on this reality. God gives seed to the sower. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians. Not seed to the sitter, not seed to the critic, not seed to the watcher, not seed to the guy who shows up once every 16 weeks, but seed to the sower, which means when I steward what God has given me, it sets me up for 30, 60, 100 fold. That's the parable of the seed and the sower. And so we have this opportunity with the soil that God's given us. We're going to turn the soil. We're going to water the soil. We're going to plant seed in the soil. We're going to do our part, watch, and then trust God that he'll do his part. Sometimes because of twisted theology, we have made God more sovereign than scripture communicates. Now, let me explain what I mean. We make it God's responsibility to plant. We make it God's responsibility to water. We make it God's responsibility to steward. We put it all on God and then blame him when it doesn't work. But scripture doesn't say it's God's responsibility to plant. He says it's your responsibility to plant. One man plants, another man waters. Now what's God's job? He brings the increase. See, God's invited you into partnership as a co-laborer and a co-heir of him in Christ Jesus, which means you've got a responsibility for the soil that he's given you. You've got a responsibility for the sphere of influence that you've got. You've got a responsibility to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking, trusting that he'll open a door unto you. But there's a part that I play, and in return, there's a part that he plays. As we draw near, he draws near. As I plant and water, he's faithful to bring increase. We got to make the most of where we're at and then watch God do his part. It's the attitude of my worship is what gives significance to the location of my feet. Watch. It's the attitude of my spirit that gives joy to the mission at hand. It is the attitude of my mind that gives me correct perspective in the midst of difficult trials. The enemy will always allow you to make excuses about why your life isn't moving in the right direction. And as long as you believe the father of lies, don't expect anything to change. Most people live running from their problems because it's easier than dealing with them. People blame their horoscopes, their Enneagram, their family of origin, their partner, their heritage, their parents, their socioeconomic status, their spiritual gift tests. Friend, if you were to kick in the rear the person most responsible for your trouble, you wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. So we take responsibility for the journey that we're on. And in doing so, we grow up in the Lord. Here's the danger of Luke 15. The prodigal son is always the father's son. 
I think the story of the prodigal son illustrates the danger of living a saved life, but a non-submitted life. And a lot of us love Jesus as our Savior, but a lot of us don't love him as our Lord. He's always the father's son. Even when he spends all of his money on wayward living. Even when he's with the pigs eating their slop. Even in the midst of his most dysfunction, he's always the father's son. But he's living an unsubmitted life. And when you live an unsubmitted life, what you think is freedom is actually bondage. See, we live in a culture that says, I want to do whatever I want, however I want, and that's true freedom. But the problem is, is when sin captures your mind, when temptation captures your perspective, when darkness clouds your soul, you begin to repeat behavior that you don't even know how to stop. It's not freedom, it's bondage. And I think the illustration of the prodigal son best depicts what, it's look like, what it looks like to live saved but not submitted. What I've found is that when people drift, hear me, they don't drift towards orthodoxy. Like when people start drifting from church and drifting from Christian community and drifting from discipleship, they never say things like this. Man, I wish I could tithe more. Man, I just wish I was in my Bible more. Man, I wish I attended more regularly. Man, I really miss communion. I really miss a lifestyle of repentance. No, friend, when people begin to drift, they go downstream, not upstream. Upstream is orthodoxy. Downstream is the ways of the world. It requires a faith that presses through the resistance of culture to swim in the direction of historic Christian orthodoxy. You know what I want to make great again? Historic Christian orthodoxy. The faith of our fathers, the teaching of the apostles, what the scripture actually means, which means this. I don't need to add bankrupt, boring, sociological constructs to scripture to make it more attractive. No, it already is attractive because Jesus is filled with beauty and brilliance. And we can't talk about the beauty and brilliance of God and divorce it from the truth of who he is. Because it's not that Jesus just has truth, Jesus is truth. Which means this, not only can I trust what he says to be true, but I must live my life looking through a Christological lens. Because he doesn't just dispense truth, he is truth. No, as a believer, you're making a decision. I'm viewing my world through the lens of Christ. No, I'm not picking and choosing based on political pressure the things that I believe in accordance with Christian worldview. No, I've made a decision that my mind and my spirit is baptized in a Christological worldview. And so now we make a decision. I view everything through this lens. What I found to be true is this. When you honor the father's house, the father will honor yours. There's a problem with a prodigal son. He doesn't realize how good he has it. <clears throat> I was taking Matthew uh, to the store uh, a few weeks ago, my seven-year-old. And we're walking through the store just picking up some items. And he sees the video game that he wants. He says, Dad, buy me this video game. I said, no. I go, Dad doesn't have the money for that. It's not that I didn't have the money. It's that I didn't have the money for that. All right? All the parents said amen. Okay? I don't have money for that. Now, I got money. It's not your money, and it's not for that. He said, well, let's just go to the church. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, let's go to the church and get more money. That's not how it works. 
I had an Ananias and Sapphira on my hands. That's not how it works. Watch. What can the church do for me? Wrong question. What does it look like for me to lay my life down, not operate in entitlement, break agreement with consumerism, and serve Jesus for the rest of my life? Right question. And when you honor God's house, God will honor yours. Oh, he'll rebuke the devourer that's come to steal your resource. Oh, he'll honor you and your kids and your, your kids' kids. Man, one of the best decisions my parents ever made was raising me in a house that didn't give me the option on whether or not I went to church. Why? Because I wasn't the parent. I was the child. And as long as I lived in their house, I was going to honor God's house. But what it built in me was appreciation for the things of the Lord. And I'm not asking the question of consumerism. But what can the church do for me? Let me just sit here with my pen and my pad and just write down all of the ways that this church might benefit me versus the next one down the street. Listen, we're not any more special than anything else that's going on in town. When people leave the church, the only thing that I ask them is to plug in somewhere else. That's my heart. I want people to find fullness in the house of God because it's instrumental and integral to your Christian development. And every once in a while, people come to me and say, Pastor, I just don't think it's the right fit. And I go, man, there are so many other good churches in the region. Just make sure you fit in somewhere because you don't realize what honor for God's house will produce in your life. See, the prodigal son began to believe a lie about what the father provided. Hear me. David says this in Psalms 23. Surely, goodness and mercy, watch, will follow me all the days of my life. Because when I follow God, what follows God follows me. I'm not chasing goodness. I'm not chasing greener pastures. I'm not chasing blessing and abundance. It's chasing me. And when I follow God, I can look in the review mirror of life and see how many times goodness has overtaken me. How many times blessing and prosperity has overtaken me. And I didn't deserve it and I didn't earn it. But hopefully I kept a heart that said I'm going to honor God first and then see the things that overtake my life. See, many of us say I'll honor God when. That's a dangerous statement. We got to allow God to break things like entitlement and consumerism off of our lives. If you never get another miracle, God has already been so good to you. If you never get another blessing, God has already done more than enough. Friend, Jesus doesn't owe you anything. And yet he decides as the father of lights to freely give you everything. It's literally the best deal that there's ever been. But if you're in the father's heart, father's house, but you have a prodigal heart, pretty soon you'll find yourself chasing things that you think will give you pleasure and fulfillment and joy. Friend, joy is not an exterior job. It's an interior job. Now watch verse 14. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. God loves you enough that he allows you to experience the depravity of need in order to recognize that he is the source of all life, all resource, all fulfillment, and all pleasure. This is what actually Moses preaches in his last sermon before he dies to the children, Hebrew children in the wilderness. He says, God allowed you to be hungry. 
that you would recognize that he is your bread. God doesn't orchestrate the need of your life, but he'll utilize the need of your life to point you right back to him. The Bible says when the prodigal son began to be in need, it triggered a response. In verse 15, the Bible says this, so he went and hired himself, basically like an indentured servant or a slave, to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Hear me, pigs are only interested in what you feed them. They never willingly return the favor. Watch, you become like the idols you worship. The rebellious son, hear me, only worshiped what he could consume. He only worshiped what others could provide. He only worshiped what would bring him temporary pleasure. And he ended up around others who operated in the same exact spirit. Don't beg for a seat in the slop when you've been invited to the table of the king. Watch verse 17. I got to go quick. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here am I starving to death. I will set out. I will go back to my father. I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Instead, make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, watch, and went to his father. Hear me. He came to his senses. He rationalized his position. He established a plan of action, and he took a step. Friend, maybe the most important thing I'll share with you this morning is coming next. This is the ingredients for how shift happens in your life. Let me put it on the screen. Number one, you sow a thought, and you reap an action. Number two, you sow an action, and in turn, you reap a habit. Number three, you, you, you sow a habit, and you reap a character. And finally, number five, you sow some character and you reap a destiny. We love what revival produces, but we hate the difficult choices that revival requires. I just wanted the pastor to pray for me and shift me into my new season. I just wanted to get a prophetic word to clear everything up. I just wanted somebody else to do all the work for me so I could enjoy the outcome without having to bear the process. No, Sunday mornings exist as an invitation for you into Christian development. And I know that doesn't sound very sexy, especially in charismatic environments. I just want the fire and wind and the glory and the gold dust and the prayer and the experience. But Sunday mornings exist as an invitation for you to change the way that you think so ultimately you can change the destiny that you have. That's how shift happens. Because if I have Jesus in my heart, but I've got rebellion in my mind, I will live my life stuck in cycles of negative, self-destructing behavior and then blame God or blame the church that I'm a part of for my miserable outcomes. No, I'm inviting you to grow up in the Lord. I'm inviting you to come and be mature in the Lord. And maturity sounds awesome, 
but the process is really difficult because it looks like dying to things like consumerism. It looks like dying to the attitude that it's everybody else's responsibility to help me grow. It's dying to the things that make you the center of attention and instead making a decision that I'm going to glorify Christ and follow him with everything that I have. Friend, it's the invitation of the ages, but the process is pretty miserable. But if you'll sow a, a thought, you can, you can reap an action. And, and, and then if you can sow an action, I, I, I bet that you, that you could reap a habit. And then if you could sow a habit, I, I bet that you could reap some character. And ultimately, if you sow some character in the good soil that you stand on, I imagine you're going to reap a destiny. That's how shift happens. Now watch what Paul says. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Essentially this. Allow the spirit to change the way that you think. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. It doesn't say it's automatic as a benefit of salvation. I wish it did, but that's not what scripture says. I wish Paul said, automatically your mind is renewed when you get saved, the end, don't worry about it. But that's not what Paul says. He's writing believers in the book of Ephesus. His true son in the faith, Timothy, pastors them. He's writing Christians, good Christian church-going people. And he's saying, man, I love that Jesus sits on the throne of your heart, but you've got an unsubmitted mind. And until you're renewed by God's spirit in your mind, your life will circle the drain of bad decisions. So make a decision. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So that's why I value church so much. You get around other people who are going in the same direction as you, and without you even knowing it, it disciples the way that you think. That's why scripture says bad company corrupts moral character because you're going to be discipled by someone. You're going to be discipled by someone. It's not neutral. You don't make a decision to be discipled. You put yourself in environments that make subtle changes in your life that oftentimes you are not even familiar or recognizing that you're making until one day it becomes a habit. You know, what I've found is if I spend any amount of time in another part of the country that has even the slightest accent, about three days in, I'm talking exactly like them. It's not a decision that I make. I'm not trying to fake it. I'm not trying to force it. It just naturally happens. If I'm in Texas longer than 45 minutes, I'm talking like I'm from the South. And you know, I'm going to be preaching on Daystar at the end of August. I'm going to be there. And you're going to think, who is this Southern preacher from Snohomish? I'm not making a decision to speak with an accent. I'm around other people, and as a byproduct of their influence, it changes the inflection of my voice. You're going to be discipled by someone. And see, that's why church is so important. That's why church is so important that you think about it like a health club you invest your life in, not an emergency room that you visit. Because you owe your kids an environment by which they will be grown up in the things of God. You owe your kids an environment by which they'll see other men and women desperately pursuing his presence. You owe your family an environment that teaches the word of God without compromise. You owe your sphere of influence an environment that comes alive when people begin to worship Jesus. That's what you owe them. 
You're going to be discipled by something. The Bible says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Fred, you might not be able to change your destination overnight, but you can change your direction. Here's what's so incredible about Luke 15. The prodigal son takes one step in the direction of the father and watch the response. The father comes running, almost as if to say, I've been expecting you. And he welcomes him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him, and he's filled with compassion. Why? Because my son, who was dead in his trespasses, is alive again. If I draw near to him, he draws near to me. Can you imagine the sinners and tax collectors who are hearing this story? I bet they are sitting there with jaws dropped, tears in their eyes, absolutely shook to the core that the express image of the Father would describe him like this, filled with compassion. And the religious leaders are filled with such anger and retribution and judgment and condemnation. And Jesus just talks about how good the Father is. And it changes the entire atmosphere. Because it's the kindness and goodness of God that leads men under repentance. He just takes one step. The Father comes running. You've got to know today. No matter how far you've run from him, nothing is lost by the Father. And you may feel like, Pastor, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've done. I've made so many mistakes. Yeah, but with one glance, you've captured his heart. And with one step in his direction, it's like all of heaven is rushing in. Man, we've been waiting for you. You're home. Let me end here. There's four things that the father gives to the son based on his return. He gives him a robe. He gives him a ring. He gives him sandals. And he slaughters the fatted calf. In that culture, the robe would represent righteousness. The father is covering the son. My son's home. If you've got a problem with him, you've got a problem with me. No, I know what he did, but that's not who he is. My covering is over him. Isaiah says it like this. It's a robe of righteousness. No, this is my son. And then he gives him a ring. No, not, not, not like a ring in our culture, a ring like in first century culture. 
a family ring would carry the family crest. It would operate as the signet ring of the family. What it meant was that that son or that daughter was authorized to do business on behalf of the family. It functioned essentially as an unlimited line of credit. What it meant was that when the son would stamp a document, it was as good as the father stamping that document himself. He didn't just put a robe on his shoulders and say, hey, maybe in the next 15 or 20 years I can restore you to a place of authority. He put righteousness on his shoulders and authority in his hands. That's how good God is. And not only that, but he puts sandals on his feet. This is maybe my favorite. The Bible says that the prodigal son sold himself as an indentured servant, more like a slave to a citizen of that country. You've got to understand that culture versus ours. In that culture, when a person would sell themselves into voluntary slavery, the first thing the slave owner would do was remove their sandals so that they could never run away. And when the son comes back home, the father gives him back his sandals, almost as if to say, I'm restoring your capacity to actually choose. You know what God won't violate? Your free will. You know what God won't violate? Your volition. You know what God won't violate? Your ability to say yes or to say no. And the father gives him back sandals saying, I'm giving you back the capacity to choose what's next for your life. And I'm trusting that you will choose me as a result of my kindness and goodness displayed to you. He doesn't lock him up. He doesn't put him in a prison. He doesn't chain him outside like a dog. He doesn't make him like a hired servant. He says, I'm giving you back your freedom to choose. Friend, the world doesn't offer freedom. It offers bondage. Only Jesus offers the freedom that you're looking for. And as I freely choose him, I come alive in the benefit of his presence. And then he kills a fatted calf. He didn't kill the fatted calf to feed the son. He killed the fatted calf so that the family and the servants could celebrate that what was dead is now alive. God doesn't tolerate you. He celebrates you. Well, I've messed up. Yeah, me too. I've made mistakes. Join the club. But you don't know about my divorce and my abuse and my abandonment, my addiction and my bondage. Listen, I may have not walked every step of the journey that you've walked, but I can tell you this. When we find fullness in the house of God, God is not annoyed. He is not simply tolerating. No, scripture says all of heaven rejoices. We serve a God who celebrates, not tolerates. Hey, kill the fatted calf, the best that we've got. Because my son's back home. Watch. God has made his heart vulnerable to your decision. Get that on the replay. Because see, our Western view of God is that he is stoic, he is stone-faced, and he is far removed from the cries of his people. Not so. God has made his heart 
vulnerable to the decisions of his people. That's why you can grieve the Holy Spirit because he's made his heart vulnerable to you. That's why you can offend the Spirit of God because he's made his heart vulnerable to you. Which means the God of the universe, the one who holds galaxies, time, and space in his hands, is so enthralled by you, the one made in his image, that he has made his heart able to be moved by your decision. And when you go all in on Jesus, his heart comes alive, and all of heaven celebrates. My son, my daughter, who was dead, is now alive. Friend, this is how shift happens. Come on, would you stand with me as we close? Let me pray for you. Let me encourage you in the Lord. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus like you should, maybe at one time you, you were close with him, but if you were to be honest, you're far away. Or maybe you realize that today I, I'm living a saved life, but with an undisciplined, unrenewed mind. I want to pray for you. The gospel isn't shame on you, it's shame off you. I want to add my faith to yours because I believe there is so much more in your future than you could ever imagine. And today we want to see shift happen in your life. Let's pray. Father, we love you.